Hello, everybody. I'm John A. Well, at least I think I'm John A. Tack. I was when I got up today. And this is, I'm going to have you pronounce your name so that we get it exactly right. Thank you. My name is Ariella Sarai. Ariella Sarai. Yeah. What a pretty name. Thank you. And um, you spent 21 years, am I right, in, in Avatar? Yes. Let me say a little bit about Avatar. I, I encountered Avatar in 1986 in California, and uh, just as it was launching. And what had happened was that a man called Harry Palmer, who was a devoted Scientologist, took his franchise, his Scientology franchise at Elmira, New York, out of the mother cult of Scientology and set up as an independent Scientologist. Um, he started getting complaints from his staff. They didn't want to stay with the mother cult, but they weren't very happy about him. And so the very first thing I heard about Harry Palmer was that he had reminded his staff, his defecting staff, that he had their ethics files. He had written down lists of all of everything that they, every embarrassing admission they had ever made. He reminded them of that. Now, even Scientology, though it will use that material, doesn't threaten people with it. So I knew I was dealing with something that was, you know, a little bit out of the ordinary. He also announced that you could now finish the Scientology bridge, you know, the elaborate process of steps that you go through in Scientology to become superhuman. And you could do it now in a single course. And it was only going to cost $500. And I remember my first thought, I, I was no longer involved in Scientology or believing. I, I had a lot to do with the independents because they needed protecting from the harassment of the Church of Scientology. Um, so I... I, my first thought when I saw this $500 and this will finish it all is like, will it be six months or a year before the second course comes out? And I think the first course he called the master's course and the second course he called the wizard's course, which I must admit I thought was a little bit, but you know, Harry Potter wasn't around yet at that time. So, um, so that, and, and people that I talked to who became involved with it early on became disillusioned very early on because it didn't uh, give them superhuman powers for some reason. Um, so that's about me. Um, you are a highly educated person. Tell us, tell us about your formal education. Your, your... Yes, I have an undergraduate degree from Columbia University in philosophy and religion. And I have a master's degree in social work from the University of Pennsylvania. Okay. Columbia, eh? Impressive. Um, so you had a pretty good grounding in all of this subject matter. And, and you then went on to work as a psychotherapist? I did. I worked as a social worker in different settings. I worked in a prison, group homes, a, um, with foster children. I also worked in a counseling agency and eventually started my own private practice as a therapist. Okay. And, and did you work within a particular psychotherapy discipline? No. No, nope. nope. just based on your education, you just, um, you're basically trained to work with the, they call it the populations that most interest you. So you take your training and then you learn from experience hmm. and you always have a supervisor that you're working with. So yep. you're getting very good training on the, on the job as well. And and how long were you doing that for and until you, you went to India? You know, I went to India in between my undergraduate and my graduate program. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, I actually applied to graduate school from India while I was volunteering with Mother Teresa. And and how long were you volunteering with Mother Teresa for? It was about six months. Mm. Yeah, I, okay. I was living in Calcutta and working in her homes. Wow. So yeah. it's a completely other world. Yeah. Really. Very much so. Um, and you also had a period where you studied Tibetan Buddhism? Yeah. I went to the north of India for also about six months, and I studied Tibetan Buddhism in Dharamsala. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And it just while we're on that subject, how, how do you, I mean, your experience with Mother Mother Teresa, I believe you, you met her briefly. Yeah. You don't seem to have had any problems or difficulties. She's She's been uh, fairly severely attacked in the last few years, but you... Found, you know, the experience was a worthwhile experience. You didn't come away disillusioned, let's put it that way. I didn't come away disillusioned by her. I definitely feel like l looking back, I can see that the missionaries of charity, the, the nuns, they lived quite a harsh existence. Mm. And at the time that I was there, I was idealizing that, yeah. which is my tendency, right? Wow, they live just like the people that they're serving. But looking back, it, it was not an easy life for them. But um, I still felt like their values were really good. That was my experience. And hmm. yeah, that was, but again, I was an idealistic young person in my 20s. So oh. yeah, I learned I, a lot. And you, you were, were in Dharamsala with, with the Tibetan community there? Yes. And that was incredible to me. I loved studying Tibetan Buddhism and still do. I find that the teachings are very useful. Um, I, I don't, I'm not involved in any way where I identify as a Buddhist or anything, but I do find it uh, incredibly interesting and useful. Yes. I, I mean, my, in my teens, I was involved with Soto Zen for a year and learned meditation in a monastery. And um, I've, found that a very useful um discipline and 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 the you know i've gone back to i've read the Diganikaya, i've gone back through the all of the sutras over the years and i find much that i agree with i find some that I, some things i disagree with I, I think that the idea of celibacy is a dangerous idea if you are withdrawing the best the most compassionate and most intelligent people from a community and they're not in parenting roles yeah. and they're not you know so i i think that you know and the and the notion of escaping from the world i i i don't find um that the world is packed with suffering and i i want to jump off i actually mm -hmm. quite like being alive so um that wasn't so when i was 17 and and met buddhism mm -hmm. though so but but yeah it, it's a, it's a rich teaching and and the dalai lama um Despite a few glitches, I mean, finding that he took $2 million from Keith Ranieri at Nixium is not so good in his his brief association with Osahara of Amshinrikyo. But he is trying to support a, a community in exile, a quite large community in exile. So, you know, sometimes uh, perhaps the due diligence is not enough. I think the most impressive, I've read four of the Dalai Lama's books over the years, and the most impressive thing that he said for me was, that that he turned around one day and said, if I found out scientifically something in the Buddha Dharma was wrong, then I would change my view toward the scientific. And that 
outraged the Buddhist community. Yeah. But for me, that is a crucial point to be made about any faith system, that, that if there is evidence that refutes it, then you go with the evidence. Um, Absolutely. You know, what I loved about it is that it was the first time uh, when I was at Columbia taking my classes in Buddhism. Um, I had a great professor, Robert Thurman, and he was so engaging. It was the first time that I started studying the mind mm. as a subject, like how does the mind work? And then also learning about compassion as something that you develop. And so mm. those two concepts in Tibetan Buddhism of wisdom and compassion just really fascinated me. And I think that's one of the mistakes I made is when I encountered Avatar, I thought it was going to take me deeper into mm. learning more wisdom, more about my mind and more compassion. Mm. And of course, it, you know, it was much more than that. And, and it's, I mean, for me, it's the single most important element in, in human behavior, compassion. Mm -hmm. um that I, I had a conversation with the archbishop of crete orthodox archbishop who's an absolutely wonderful man um bishop Irenaeus, and we we had four or five hours to together after a conference in st petersburg and once he'd realized that he was not going to convince me to become a christian um you know he spent about 10 minutes at that um he asked me what i believed and i had to stop and i said well I believe in compassion and I, I try to have compassion and I understand the meaning of the word humility. And um, one day I hope to get some of that too. <laughs> and he said, yes, you know, humility is, is the thing. And it is, it is dreadful in Scientology, in, in Avatar, in so many of these systems. It is about compassion. John Kabat-Zinn in promoting mindfulness um, and more recently Daniel Goleman have said that if you meditate, it will develop compassion. You don't need any separate form. When New Scientist a couple of weeks ago published a review of Goleman's latest book about meditation, I wrote to them and said, well, you do realize that, that, that the Japanese military from the Meiji Restoration in the 1880s right through the Second World War were all meditating on a daily basis. And it did not make them compassionate. We need mm -hmm. to be careful about this. So the Buddhist notion that you have to, as you said, develop compassion. You have to keep looking at how you're behaving towards others and what you're doing. And perhaps the more modern view, Paul Bloom at Yale with his um, um, Against Empathy, uh, the, the case for rational compassion. And I think the title of his book, I've read the book, but I think the title says everything there needs to be said, mm -hmm. that there are many of us who are, have a kind of too much empathy, super empathy, so, so that it's a kind of knee-jerk reaction and it's easy to exploit people who have strong empathy so i think developing compassion where you were looking at why you were being empathetic and uh towards whom you're being empathetic which should be everybody i think i think i think that's very important so you basically had the fundamental tools you had the training you, you had the background you had the, the comprehension but you didn't feel satisfied you didn't feel fulfilled that's the the word you used with um our friend Chris Shelton when you talked with them and uh, along came you had if I remember rightly a couple who were psychotherapists who were good friends of yours who became involved in Avatar and took you into Avatar tell us uh, you know your initial impression of Avatar and and you know what what the, the training you took with them in the first place 
My initial impression was that everybody was very peaceful. I went to a training in New Hampshire for nine days. My son was three at the time. My best friend came with me with her three-year-old and took care of the kids Mm -hmm. while I took the course. We stayed in a hotel. And my experience was that I got so much attention. Mm. Everybody wanted to know the details of how I was feeling. And I felt like I was getting a very deep understanding and explanation of why I was feeling the way I was, how I could change my feeling state, how I could become more present, create the reality I wanted. I was learning these tools that supposedly were giving me the ability to create a new reality Hmm. and attract whatever I want. And they also told me uh, that I was getting tools to what they call discreate my beliefs. So, right. So I was basically sold on this whole idea that I could, it was like purify all my negative experiences and beliefs and then recreate myself as this very powerful, positive human being who can really control her reality. Mm. So <laughs> it, it, is there a spe- are there specific drills, specific um, tools that you would use to, to discreate the negative and uh, eliminate negative and latch on to the affirmative? Was there, you, you know, you, you're given, I think there's something with Avatar that you're not allowed to take the materials away, that, yeah. that they're esoteric, they're They're, they're, they're confidential. Yeah, you're not supposed to. So even now when you said that, I thought, oh boy, yes, I'm definitely not going to share the tools. Isn't that interesting? I still yeah. have that as a knee-jerk reaction. And for my own protection, I'm not going to specifically uh, share all of the tools, but I will share some of what they taught and the ways that they taught them mm. and, and that I can now recognize as actually detrimental. So in the beginning, um, they do this weekend workshop where you end up revealing your deepest beliefs, limiting beliefs, uh, past experiences. They manage to draw out everything from you and now I see that what they were doing is of course gathering all my sensitive data my fears my desires my beliefs so that they could hook me further and further into their program but at, at first it felt revealing all these connections that you were making so there was a lot of explaining about how your attention works, uh, how beliefs work. And of course, they're giving you their paradigm. Mm. But I was just thinking, oh, this is cool. I, I didn't question it because it it sounded interesting to me. It, mm. it sounded like it made sense. Oh, I have hidden beliefs that are blocking me. All right, let's look at that now, right? Now, um. I have since come to realize that the whole idea of eliminating beliefs is completely unproven. And there's, I mean, think about that logically for a minute. Uh, So if we would ever get rid of a belief and then, you know, we would call the trainer the next week, say, oh, I'm feeling the same thing. It's back. They would say, why did you recreate it then? 
mm. rather than you can't actually get rid of the belief. You you can right now believe anything that you decide to believe, mm. right? It's so it's just a whole funny concept how how I bought that, and uh, you know they would coach me, and I would for a moment, I would feel like I would say it's gone. So I guess I, I took my attention off of it in some way, but part of me was thinking, huh, is this really true? But I ignored that. Mm. Yeah. The red flags. Yeah. Yes. So that I mean, was in the beginning. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for, for me, so many systems, um, will tell you that you have a hidden enemy. You have a, a conscious agent inside yourself that is acting against your interests. We can look in psychotherapy concepts like the id uh, or the superego, but particularly the id. Um, we can look to religions that believe, you know, the Tibetans with gadons, the Jews with dibuks, the Christians with demons, Scientologists with body thetans. Um, there's this idea that there's something inside you that you don't know about that is directing you. And so many things are pushed towards, well, okay, you have these beliefs and they're coming up and they're, they've not been thought through properly. Um, and if we look through the, you know, the history of, of the contemporary authoritarian cults and go back to the 19th century where you had um, Ralph Waldo Trine in tune with the infinite, or Madame Blavatsky, or uh, Mary Baker G. Eddy, who, and, and that comes up through things like The Secret, now Beyond the Secret, and Napoleon Hill in the 50s. It's funny, I was looking at the documentary, I watched Beyond the Secret and went, oh yeah, really? What a piece of PR. You've got all of these aging people who are going, yes, I've achieved all of my aims. Yeah, really. But they're saying, this is a secret that nobody knows, and we're the first people that ever had it. And on the same channel, there were all 13, I think it was, of Napoleon Hill's 1950s shows where he says exactly the same things they're saying. It becomes the law of attraction. It becomes postulates in Scientology. So this idea that what you believe is what will, you're a kind of magnet. And mm -hmm. that if you believe the wrong things, then bad things will come to you. And if you believe the right things. And in simple, possibly simplistic terms, that almost seems like a, a law of physics, mm -hmm. but it isn't. <laughs> it is not the way the world works. And it's very easy to trap somebody in that thought of the, the reason they're failing is they're not believing in themselves enough. And there's that truth then that if you don't believe in yourself, you will fail. So, you know, what the balance is, but when you start believing nonsense you know when you start looking in in the mirror every day with napoleon hill and saying i get a little lovelier every day then you you start work start living within the world of your own inter interpretation rather than reality and mm -hmm. you know moving further and further away from what's actually happening in reality often so okay so and and you you felt did you feel a connection that you'd not felt before? Did you, with this group, with these people being so nice to you and supportive, did you feel yeah, you'd come I mean, home to a community? Yes, I felt like I met like-minded people. And gosh, I think if you put, if you take anyone out of their lives, I was a single mom at that time, right? For yeah. nine days 
and give them all kinds of attention and explain things that they didn't have answers for and give them answers to why the world works this way and what they could do about it, you're going to feel better, mm. right? I mean, I it, all of that combined. So I felt better. I did have some insights uh, about myself and a sense of empowerment and a sense of community. Mm. Of course, what happened is right at the end of the first course, they started inviting me, started inviting me to the next course. Mm. So How much course, did the first course cost, by the way? It was twenty three hundred. Okay. And right at the end, that was called the Avatar course. Mm. At the end of that, they wanted me to go to the Master's course, which was three thousand. And of course, it was happening in two weeks in Florida, and mm. I lived in Connecticut with a three-year-old. But that was the beginning of the push. So they said, you have all this wonderful avatar tools, all these tools now, but they don't give you the book so that you can use the tools at home. You only get the book if you go to master's. So you, you felt, you know, I felt worried like, oh, what if I can't remember them? And then at master's, they told you that, you know, you now have all this awareness, but you're going to go home to all these people who have essentially no awareness and are operating in their default and they're asleep. And you're going to need a tool that you get at master's to stay present and connected and sane as you interact with the world. Plus mm -hmm. you'll have your own tools, you know? So, I mean, I said, okay, let's do it. Right. Mm -hmm. I went with my three-year-old suitcases, everything found babysitting and went to the master's course in Florida and learned this tool, which is, I now look back and it was extremely dangerous. It's what you referred to earlier. And I think they have it in Scientology. You look like you're staring and it's staring into the other person with great appreciation, right? Appreciation. And this is the beginning where I trained myself to appreciate everything, which sounds like compassion, but what you're doing is you're training yourself not to have any discernment. Yes. So oh, yes. I, I stopped being able to feel anger or outrage mm -hmm. or anything, mm -hmm. anything anybody would do, I would appreciate and appreciate and appreciate, which is how they started to be able to get away with the types of abuses that they eventually did to me. Mm. And that only happened when I started teaching, when they wrote me into becoming a teacher, a master, they called it. So, um, I mean, Scientology, you have formal, the training routines where um, you, you first of all sit in a chair with somebody and you close your eyes until you can be there comfortably and confront. And I don't know how you confront things with your eyes closed, but it's a mystery. But uh, it's a drill that Hubbard, in fact, adopted from Alistair Crowley, uh, his, his, his personal master. Um, you then sit and look at the person for some hours without moving. So is there a, you know, a focused 
I mean, in Hindu practice, this is called tratak. So a, an old and traditional drill, but, but, but you, do you spend time staring? You do. Yeah. But you, with, with eyes open in, in eyes, Abhita, open. With eyes open, but you have a lots of drills where you spend time staring at the mm. other. Yes. And how long will you spend in, in doing one of these drills? 10 minutes, half an hour? Or... Um, well, when you're learning it, sometimes all day person after person with a given person you're supposed to be in that state anytime you're coaching anytime you're talking to someone anytime you're listening and anytime you're prospecting mm. so they wanted you to basically live in that state but in an individual session where you're learning and practicing anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes but you could spend you we would spend hours coaching people in that like coaching them through the tools and the processes mm. all day uh in fact if you weren't in that mode they would uh call you out they would say you know where's your and they called it serious drill where's your serious drill you know so you serious you drill serious drill yeah yeah <laughs> i'm gonna make a note of that it and I mean, when doing this, you know, I, I spent 40 years deconstructing these techniques yeah. and um, the language becomes very dangerous. People talk about trances and I, I'm not sure that's a very useful term, but we also have different states of mind. People talk about altered states, whatever, but there are different states of mind. We feel different ways with different emotions. And if you fixate perception, then you experience the Gansfeld effect. And, the, you know, the brain will attempt to make something move, to make something happen if nothing's happening. And it's as if the perception is being turned up and turned up and turned up because nothing's happening, you know. And you'll then get feedback from within the system itself. So if you sit for 10 minutes in a completely dark room and have a normal brain, then you'll think there are things moving around you. You will hear little noises. And these are things that are internal. If you stare at something for long enough, you'll start to see color drift. You'll mm -hmm. start to, there'll be alterations of perception. And there is absolutely no conversation about that in Scientology. And mm -hmm. people are going, wow, you know, it's, it's, it's this incredible. Also, of course, what will happen is that as you sit still and the processes of your body slow down, you'll most often feel euphoric. You'll feel good about it. What happens in Scientology, and I, sensing that this is you know this getting your serious drill on is that you are meant to to be in this perceiving state all the time and what's actually happening is that you are therefore moved into a particular state of mind so if we wanted to go there and it's a, an interesting and complex place to go what is happening is in a Scientology counseling session, not only is the person being counseled being put into a different state, which will be a euphoric state, that's what you're looking for, but the person doing it will have entered the state already. So rather than having a counselor and a person being counseled, you've got two people who are in an altered state, yes. uh, which will restrict, greatly restrict, in my experience, perception. It took me six months after leaving Scientology to stop staring at people right. or confronting them, as Scientologists say. And it was weird how much more I noticed about the environment when I stopped fixating my perception. 
Absolutely. It, it's a way I now see it's a way of tuning out your mm. environment and your own internal cues. Yeah. Right. And it's presented as a spiritual state of compassion and connection. And you really are just tuning out mm. your awareness. And it's, it's, I think it's very dangerous. I do as well. And I think it, it makes you very susceptible to outside control. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yet you think you're doing something wonderful. Mm. Um, so to continue on a little bit more about the tools, there's a couple of really interesting things. So as you can probably tell at this point, I don't know what's going on. So I'm feeling pretty good because I'm feeling like I'm connecting to people. I'm feeling like I'm having tools that are helping me process emotions and understand things at a much deeper level. So I decide to teach. Now, they have, um, at the very end of this course, this master's course, they did the same recruiting techniques where they're explaining why it's so important for me to come to the next course to teach. And the way that they did that was they said, you know, Look around, look how happy everybody is. Feel yourself, feel how good you feel. Don't you want everybody to have this? Which is right. a Scientology tagline, by the way. Palmer, okay. Palmer got that one straight from Hubbard. Do you want yeah. others to have the wins that you now have? Oh yes, and we called it wins, that's right. And then that's when they started to say, you just did in nine days, what it would have taken nine years for somebody to do in therapy. So I had my licenses. I worked really hard to get my degrees. And that was the beginning of discrediting and devaluing the degrees and the education that I had yeah. and saying, look how amazing this is. This is where the answer is. Mm. Um, I, I didn't recognize it at the time, but of course I'm nodding my head and thinking, wow, yeah, I feel really good, really quickly. Sure. Maybe I can bring some friends, which is a, how it happens. Mostly, yep. you know, it was a friend of mine who got me in. I, you, you always start with your friends and family. So mm -hmm. uh, I brought a couple of friends to the next course. And what I discovered is that as soon as you start teaching the move they move very quickly from the focus being enlightenment, like your own enlightenment mm. to recruitment. <laughs> it's intense recruitment, mm. but it's under the guise of, again, sharing these wonderful wins. They also use the tools to tell you that, you know, they twist all the spiritual concepts like, they would name that feeling that I had of, oh, I can't go to the next course. I have clients. I have a life. I have a child. Um, they would use the concept of stretching. Like they would say this feeling that you're having, which was now I can see it was a feeling of uh, aversion. It was a feeling mm -hmm. of, I don't want to go. I don't want to go to the next course. I don't want to bring more students right now they would invite me to st stretch through that and call that spiritual growth. Yeah. So it's just further dismissing of my inner voice. So I kept stretching through that. And then they had tools where they're showing you 
how to create a reality, supposedly, by putting in an intention. And then you exaggerate anything that came up that was in the way of that intention, whether it was a feeling, a thought, an actual situation, like I don't have the money. And then you would go back to stating your intention. And so they were telling you that you're implanting this intention and clearing out anything that's in the way. Hmm. What you're actually doing is training yourself to dismiss any perception that you have and not pay attention Hmm. and not handle it. So if you don't have money, you don't exaggerate that, you go and create money. Right. You don't exaggerate that and then beg your family and friends for money, which is what we did or mortgage your house or whatever we were all doing. Right. Um, So that was just one of the tools that they used. I have others. I have another one that's extremely disturbing that I can share in a minute. But do you have any thoughts about what I just shared? Absolutely. The intention is is the, the the center of of the Scientology teaching. Most Scientologists won't be able to tell you that because the teaching is so incredibly complicated. But it is the idea of being able to exert will, uh, you know, to put it back into the old magician's terms, that that you will be able to bend the world to your will as you become more powerful. And that hinges on the term intention. Now, Hubbard added to that that there will then be counter-intention, something that goes against an intention and there will be other intention that you want to do something else instead and so you're always honing your intention to achieve these things and there's then within that you know robert j lifton's idea of the demand for purity that to be pure is to push aside everything other than achieving the next level the next state that's being offered to you by the group that's the most important thing and if necessary in scientology It'll be pointed out I have, from my friend, um, Nora Beth Crest. Uh, she, she gave a talk in uh, a seminar I gave in Toronto in 2015. And um, she said that, that she'd asked for a day off. And uh, she got this lecture about all the millions of suffering people and what would happen in the world if she didn't, you know, she had to be applied to her job. I talked with a woman who'd been in three years. She'd, she'd married and for three years, in three years, she and her husband had had three days together in three years because of this idea of, well, you've got a, you've got counterintention, you've got other intention. The intention, you know, everything's desperate. We've got to save the world. You, you've got to be pure. You've got to do exactly as you're told. And it, everything is couched in terms of urgency. You know, there is no sitting back from this and, and smelling oh. flowers, you know that this was this eventually as i rose up the ranks and i did rise up the ranks to the highest level where i was making um what they called primaries these were called primaries with abra every single day i would get a call very early in the morning every single day but by the time i rose up the ranks i experienced that same thing not a single day off not a single never whether i was on course or off course i was expected to produce and um, even while I was sleeping, they would train you to set your intention before you sleep. And if you wake up, create another primary. So um, 
it took me a long time after I left to be able to let go and stop feeling like I had to produce. And they also um, trained us really well that, so uh, that, that being in Avatar and bringing students was saving the world and was actually best for our family. Mm-hmm. So that my son, you know, who was grow- growing up by the, I, I brought him a lot in the beginning and put him in babysitting, but there came a time where he didn't want to leave his life and his activities, obviously in the school needed him to be there. He couldn't be absent every two weeks. Right. So um, they, they just kept telling me that this is the best thing I could do for him. And when I would ask for money from people, I was basically um, helping their karma. I mean, it's embarrassing looking back now, but this is the type of thing that that they kept saying because we're saving the, we were saving the world, which is of course very arrogant, mm. right? There, there's a the, the interesting combination of being manipulated, yet it was also hooking me on a certain arrogance that I had because I liked the feeling of having this special information. And thinking that I was really able to help people and Mm. right. And so there was this, they would play on that as well. So it was a very interesting combination. And uh, there is a positive to that, you know, say you take medical training so that you can help people, then it's possible that you might feel intensely humble, but it's more likely that, that you'll feel that, that you are somebody, that you're doing something good in the world. And certainly many of the doctors I've met have had that feeling about themselves and some of them didn't deserve it. But the sense that you are doing something worthwhile, purposeful, mm-hmm. it is a very positive sense. It easily tips over into feeling that you're part of the elect, you're part of a yeah. superior group. And, well, what we just said about the... The, the training of the Japanese military, that that was a serious part of it. And I'd like to add that, in fact, every Zen sect has now apologized for, for what for their part in creating the monstrous um, element. But those, you know, yeah, you've got that sense of we are the electoral, we we are above other people. And that that can be positive or negative. It can be supercilious arrogance, or it can be a, a gen, genuine reflection a self-pride that, that that you are doing some good in the world. That is a good point because I do feel looking back even that the students who came and got the materials and got some insights and left generally saw good improvement in their lives. Mm. And I used to always get in trouble because they would always ask me, why don't my students move on to become delivering masters? And I had to process that as transgressions thousands of times. Mm. But um, I can now see that in a certain way, I was protecting them. Yeah. So I'd bring people in, help them, and then protect them. And mm. the avatar was very angry with me about that. Mm. Yeah, I, I had a, a, you know, I, I brought a, a number of people into Scientology. I'm grateful to say they, they all left mm-hmm. pretty much by the time I did. And there are a couple of cases where somebody did have a, a particular problem that they wanted to resolve, 
and they felt they had resolved it yeah. and then they left and yeah. Yeah. um what the the catalyst will be for somebody to to make a necessary change in their life it, it can be very variable and and so it's easy to fall into the, the, the trap of thinking that authoritarian groups are evil all that mm -hmm. comes from them is evil sometimes mm -hmm. an encounter with such a group ca can be a life transforming experience and a positive yeah. experience carrying yeah. on with the group will generally lead to enslavement <laughs> so that's right which is exactly what happened okay you you, you were, we we talked about in, intention and and um you had another revelation you wished to share with us and everybody's been sat there waiting for you to... <laughs> yeah it's another example of the danger of um the tools and I also want to add in here you know as a trained therapist I know better than to start processing trauma and uh very complicated issues with people who are not licensed and trained mm. nobody at avatar was licensed and trained unless they came in with a previous mm. license like i did right so i had some abilities to work with people who have experienced trauma mm. but it's very dangerous these groups and 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 avatar you had these new masters that had no background nothing except mm. for this like trance like tool and then reading tools that they're coaching people on. And they would start co coaching people through their traumas. Yeah. And very often, I want to say at least once every couple of months, somebody would have a psychotic break on mm -hmm. the course and the hospital would come. The, the ER would come, uh, ambulance would come and take them to the ER. Then they started requiring letter letters if somebody was seeing a therapist so that the therapist would know that they were actually at a course mm. uh, which was an attempt at responsibility but still I mean the therapist didn't really know what the course was about right mm. and couldn't couldn't possibly know exactly what avatar was doing especially since the tools were confidential so he created this tool called the forgiveness option and it is free it is available online anybody can look at it it's not one of the confidential ones and you're supposed to make a list of the things that happened to you that were extremely painful that are still causing you um to feel upset so you make a list and then you ask the question who caused it who do you blame and why what was your reaction and resulting condition? And finally, what might you have done to prevent the situation? I know this is very common in Scientology. So this is the beginning of where they train you that no matter what happens, I mean, the two worst examples of this, and they're almost very tough to share. They're almost too tough to share are that um, I was coaching someone who was abused sexually abused by her grandfather age three and was told to grill her 
over and over again about what she might have done to prevent the situation. And then when she would say, well, I might have told somebody earlier and they would say, no, not after. What might you have done to prevent the situation? I mean, it was shocking. And another one um, lost her mom and brother in a car accident. And what might she have done to prevent? I mean, it was insane, John. Mm. And um, then this tool was the same tool that was used anytime we as delivering masters, they called us, those are the ones who are teaching and coming to all the courses. Anytime we noticed something that happened to us that the organization did, right? What might we have done to prevent the situation? So every single thing that happened was our responsibility. Mm -hmm. And every good thing that happened was, of course, attributed to the tools and the organization. So that was very hard indoctrination to consider everything your fault, which is also why um, I stayed because I kept thinking that if I kept improving myself, I would see how glorious the organization was and all my issues would be resolved because they were really just me. Like there was no acknowledgement mm -hmm. of context or of anyone else's responsibility. Uh, and of course they didn't hold themselves to that standard either. So mm -hmm. when they would get attacked, they would never look at what they might have done. But yeah, it was quite intense with that tool and and uh, very dangerous. Mm. And it, it is, it's a one-way street that that anything good that happens to you is the gift of the group. Anything bad that happens to you is your own fault. And if you try and apply it the other way around, you know, why why was Elrond Hubbard thrown out of uh, Great Britain as an undesirable alien? Well, it's because they are suppressors. Right. And... The, the idea in Scientology is is the overt motivator sequence, uh, karma vipaka in the, the Buddhist idea and the Hindu idea, uh, action and reaction. And Hubbard said, well, the only reason that anything bad happens to you is because you've done something bad. And we see Harry Palmer now taking this and making some, you know, his own version of this. The thought of a three-year-old being given responsibility to prevent a... Uh, an adult from attacking her it, it's it's ridiculous it's ridiculous but it then Ludicrous. as you say it becomes incredibly sinister be because you are in fact taking agency away from that person and saying it's your fault if you'd done the right thing this wouldn't have happened and you know there's a, a i don't know if the story is anecdotal i was told it didn't told it was true that a chap walked into the Manchester Scientology organization in Britain and he decked the guy who'd sold him the courses. He walked in, punched him, and the guy's on the floor and he looks at him, he says, you pulled that in. And it, it's such a comprehension of, you know, I hope it is anecdotal and, and not, you know, that, that it's not yeah. apocryphal, I mean, not anecdotal. Um, but the... There is that thing built in that this is a really simplistic way to look at the world and a dangerous way, because if compassion is significant, then to to blame people for everything that happens to them 
there there is no compassion in that um but they would tell you that they were being compassionate mm. because you know what they said they said victim mindset is the most um powerless and detrimental mindset a, a human being can have so we want to get you out of all victim mentality mm. and so they would they would twist it they twisted everything so their lack of compassion was now presented as a gift because they're bringing us out of victim mindset. Mm. And again, the victim mindset is something that Palmer takes directly from Hubbard. And if, you, if you're talking to somebody who's been involved with Scientology and you suggest they were the victim of Scientology, you will see the reaction yeah. that so it's still ingrained there's still this idea that, that to admit you've been a victim of something is that's a horrible thing but the reality is it's all it's just a word sometimes things happen to you and that, that aren't your fault and right. you know we have to if if we're to be compassionate we cannot look at the world in that way i had a, a friend of mine many years ago she said to me why are you wasting your time with these ex-scientologists they've all pulled it in and, and so I said to her, look, Shona, if a four-year-old is going in front of a bus, do I stop the four-year-old or is it their karma? You know, they've got this coming. And how do you factor compassion into, into this? That, um, you know, this is, there, are there are dangerous ways of believing here that become antisocial, quite simply. That, you know, mm -hmm. there is pro-social activity and there is antisocial activity. And groups will start teaching antisocial activity as as if it were for the benefit of humanity to be horrible right. to people and dismissive and brutal. You and know? Manipulating and controlling and mm. all of that. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's really well said. Um, I think that one of the things that happens when you ask someone an impossible question, like what might you have done to prevent a situation that there's really nothing you could have done to prevent, right? Like, um, like so many made up things that uh, they said that we all did. You start to you start to fabricate your own transgressions, and I know this is a, a, a phenomenon that's difficult for people who haven't done it to understand. Oh. But it's it's a weird shift where you're integrity is so important to you but you're in a hot seat like I was very often every two weeks in a room filled with 20 to 60 people uh, and then Abra Harry's wife with a microphone in front and then the person next to her John with a computer typing every single thing we said asking us for what our transgressions against the mission were. Because if we didn't bring enough students, we obviously had transgression, transgressions. And so, you know, here you are trying to really help and give as much as you can. You've given a hundred hours that week to doing nothing else but trying to bring in students, right? I mean, at a certain point, I really, really had no life. I really was. I was not seeing movies. I was not um, enjoying anything other than just like trying to get students in. Um, 
but then, you know, when you didn't have as many as you had said you would bring, you had to justify why. And so eventually, you know, I started making up things like, um, I, I have intentions to take down the mission by uh, proving that the tools don't work um, in order to sabotage saving the world, you know, and literally like if you're, if you don't even know what that means, if you see my emails now, I look at it, I have no idea what that language means. It's nonsense. Mm. And you're creating this, all these ideas of things you did, and then you get approval mm. when you, when you actually own it. And if you don't, then you get all your privileges taken away. So anything you do like about being on the course, you can't do. Now you can't work with students. Now, you know, you're sitting in the back working in the bookstore. Like you, you can't do what you normally like to do. And everybody knows it. So it's very humiliating. It, do the penalties go further than that in, in, in terms of your time or... Um... You know, with Scientology, and and I didn't experience this because I was a was not a staffer. I wasn't on the inside. But mm -hmm. uh, diet restrictions, sleep restrictions, things of that type, do they happen? They they didn't use sleep restrictions as punishment. But if we got more than five hours of sleep, we were called out. Um, we were typically the Americans were made fun of for needing more sleep because. Um, the people coming from Asia typically were able to sleep less, but they would fall asleep in their their chairs sometimes. People coming from Australia with a time change in New Zealand. I mean, I've never experienced exhaustion to this degree. We were just mm -hmm. required to work incredibly late and, and get up early. Um, I remember that there was a certain point or I tried to have a limit for myself that I would never wake up. I called it in the fours and even like anywhere around four o'clock to five o'clock was the earliest. And eventually that changed and I would wake up um, between four and four 30 every day and not get home till 10 and then have to prepare for the next day. Um, and I mean, there's so much more I can say about that. So that was just part of the culture, but uh, they, were, they never did anything with dietary rest restrictions and they never used that as a punishment, but they would just give you so much to do because um, what, what they would use was called Harry's Enlightened Justice Procedure, EJP. <laughs> and you'd have to make up for your transgressions by doing things for the organization and this is really really bad doing things for the organization to make up for these quote-unquote bad things that you did and this is where they extorted millions of dollars from people so they took our money they took um they we would be required to um bring in even more students than we naturally bring in so i guess by default, you are giving up sleep because you have to somehow find time to create these impossible, fulfill these impossible demands that you said you would do to make up for how bad you are. Mm. I, I mean, taking just just starting with the point of sleep, and there's so much in what, what you said there as, as well. Um, I've even I've had to make some little notes. Um, I, I'm I, I have a delayed 
sleep-wake phase, which means that it, it's genetically fixed. Um, you know, I've been diagnosed by three people over the decades. And it means that if, if I try and move my sleep period at all, and, and I normally sleep from about 4.30 in the morning till 12.30, um, so, you know, I sleep eight hours the same as most other people. But if I try and move that, and I did, and, um, you know, curiously, it was being in Scientology that allowed me at the age of 21 to say, I'm not doing that anymore. This is the time you I can't concentrate properly if, if I don't sleep at these hours. Um, I feel awful. You know, my immune system doesn't function properly. And I'd, I've had it since I was 11 years old, which is normal time. Ron said, I have four kids. They all have it, all diagnosed. Um, and it's fixed. There is, people will talk about taking melatonin. Well, melatonin has recently, this last year, studies have shown that it doesn't do what, what we've been told it does. So, um, you know, meta-analyses of, of the use of melatonin. Um, and it functions somewhere around placebo, you know, a little bit above placebo, about 40, 42%. Um, so it means that I've been much more conscious of sleep. So I was in a group that where people were being sleep deprived, but I was not one of them because, um, there's a peculiar twist in Scientology that Hubbard had this thing about celebrities. And if you happen to be any kind of artist and I'm a painter, I'm a musician, I'm a writer, then you are treated in a different way, yeah. uh, kid gloves. So my treatment was all wonderful for nine years, even though I didn't, I wasn't making enough money to to get by. I was just about paying for my courses and things, which were a heck of a lot cheaper then than they are now. I spent about nine thousand pounds in nine years, so what? That's about twelve thousand um, dollars. But I'm because I'm so aware of my own sleep problems, and because I have kids with sleep problems, I've read a great deal about sleep mm -hmm. and. Uh, for anybody who's coming out of a of a group that has forced them to restrict their sleep for whatever reason, I absolutely recommend uh, Matthew Walker, Why We Sleep. He's a professor at Berkeley. And he points out that, that the three bases of human health are sleep, diet, and exercise. And then he mm. says, and without sleep, the other two don't work. Mm. And the research is now... You know, it's a huge amount of research showing how it will affect your cognitive processes, um, your memory, your your mood. Everything is affected by sleep. So when you have a group that is disdaining members who get less than, you know, and it varies. Some people can get by on about six hours a night, very few. Some people need nine or ten. But you take that away and you won't be able to think clearly. That's mm -hmm. perhaps the most important part of this. And you'll be more willing to accept direction from the outside because you'll be confused. So okay. this, this is a, a really interesting point. Um, the idea of making up the harm you've done to the group, that's called the liability formula in Scientology. I mean, this is a man who was steeped in Scientology. Palmer was, he held a franchise that recruited for Scientology he was in what would in Scientology be called a gung-ho Scientologist, and he made quite a lot of money doing it. And then he found that he could do something else and he could take the tools 
that Ron Hubbard had provided him with, as did so many others. Uh, Paul Twitchell, Eckenkard, Alfred John, um, Werner Earhart, Jack Rosenfeld, de depending how we looked in, with Est, which was so incredibly successful. Going back, one of the techniques that Werner Earhart used very strongly is that hot seat technique, which you don't find in Scientology. Individuals will be blazed at and burned down in what's called a severe reality adjustment if they are working for the group. Mm -hmm. Happens behind closed doors. I only ever saw it once in my nine years, and that was because I'd employed a guy who had was been a high, very high-ranking Scientologist, and he did it to my wife. He yelled his head off at her, telling her what a force of destruction she was in the world and how she was trying to stop me from achieving anything and what have you. And I really didn't know what to do. It was so unusual to me. But now, 40 years after leaving, I've, I've met quite a lot of people who've had hot seat treatment where a whole group would sit around. Now, this comes from the Chinese Communist Thought Reform Program. Um, people get tied up in there. Is it brainwashing? Isn't it brainwashing? Well, let's get rid of the word. That's what the Chinese call it. And I think, see now, I think they have a right to call it whatever they want. But people can argue about that. Does it work? Where does it go? Well, yeah. Look at Chinese society. It worked. Chinese society is the most controlled society outside of North Korea in the world. I was mm -hmm. talking to a friend last week who, who worked in China for six years. And she said, people would come into the office and they'd have their phone. And they say, oh, the pollution levels are down. And she said, look out of the window. <laughs> And they say, no, the pollution, it says on the app, the pollution levels down. And she said, that's China. That's the society they've created through these methods. Now, one of the principal methods is criticism and self-criticism. Mm -hmm. And you get the person to criticize themselves, and then you get them to criticize all around them. And then you can punish them for, <laughs> so speak openly, say whatever you like, you know, and we will then execute you. It was a bit severe, their system. And you have the struggle session, and you are describing something that Palmer seems to have taken more directly from the Chinese and indeed Russian uh, approach than from Scientology. Um, and Scientology has an inference of it. But this idea of sitting people down, getting them to publicly confess, I mean, we can also find origins in various yeah. Christian sects for that as well. But getting people to, and then writing it down, it just seems horribly manipulative. You know, it was very manipulative. Manipulative, and to be clear, this this was only for the top inner circle. Mm. So a bit like the severe reality adjustment, which is not seen by the public, who think everything not is wonderful seen. and it was nice behind and closed doors, right? They think we were all. Everybody thought we were just so wonderful and being treated so well. You'd close that door. And it was absolutely hell for me. And as part of this whole hot seat, they would also tell you things about yourself. So the things that I was constantly told um, were that I was arrogant, that I um, was very selfish. And my favorite, and um, I might have mentioned that my uh, partner, Mark, and I were writing a memoir uh, mm -hmm. because it's it's pretty fascinating, some of the details and, and how we got in, how I got out, uh, and all of that. Um, we're thinking of calling it, I'm the boss of me, because 
the biggest thing that they, that Abra would tell me over and over is that I had an identity that was called, I am the boss of me. And that identity was actually rebellious. And who am I to think that I should be the boss of me, where I am part of this great organization who's saving the world. And I think I know best. And they had these horrible ways of introducing students where you'd have to sit there and listen to 45 minutes of a very boring video by Harry Palmer and then read all this stuff. And, you know, by the time you were done, you just wanted to get out of there. And I would just talk to someone and they'd want to come, you know, and I'd bring them in and then they'd somehow find out that I never did the whole introduction process. And so that was an example of an I am the boss of me identity, even if it was getting them what they wanted or if I had another idea or um, complained about how exhausted I was, wanted some sleep, anything, they would point that out. Like, look at her, I am the boss of me identity. And it's just so interesting now um, that, you know, that I would allow anybody to tell me that I am not the boss of me. And I would keep trying to correct that and say, oh gosh, I hear you. Yes, I see is amazing. Mm. And the thought that thinking for yourself was such a bad idea. <laughs> right, because, right, look how limited we all are, where there's something so amazing, we could have group think. And that's, I mean, that's something that if I wish people would understand when they're engaging with any of these groups or individuals that when the person or group's voice starts to become your voice mm. and you're making a decision or you're thinking about something and you're hearing that voice, you're starting to develop a cult identity or a group identity. And once you start to develop that identity, you can lose yourself very quickly and very thoroughly. Yeah. And so, yeah, anyone who tells you that you're not the boss of yourself, um, run like hell. <laughs> yes, for sure. I mean, I mean, in Scientology, people will say, what would Ron do? In and in any situation, what would Ron do? What and would Harry do? Yeah. 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 Had the same thing. And the answer is they'd grab the money and run. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> And then you, you, the inversions of logic, the, you know, the idea that, that being independent, individual, creative, mm -hmm. thoughtful, coming up with new ideas, all of these things. No, we're not having any of that. So, you, you know, Hubbard was in, prolific in terms of redefining words. And he, he actually wrote a, a policy letter called um, Propaganda by Redefinition of Words, which mm -hmm. I think pretty much explains what he's doing. And then we have two 600-page dictionaries of new words or redefinitions of existing words one of the words that's quite interesting is the word reasonable and if a scientologist tells you you're being reasonable that is a deep criticism wow because to be reasonable is it it's intellectualizing justifying thinking about something rather than seeing it where it is but he's rather than using one of those words which already exist he hey. picks a word and inverts its its meaning so you start you're in a very confusing world of language yes you know where it's it's hard to see what's up and what's down mm -hmm. though of course the word down does mean a hill so 
originally so it happens in english too you know but uh, we have the sussex downs that always confused me when i lived in sussex that the downs were were hills you know but um that that deliberate manipulation of language um i have to i have to go there do, do you do in avatar is there a belief in past lives not explicitly but when you get into the wizards material they oh. do talk about i think it's what um scientology calls body thetans so disembodied spirits so you are talking about that as if it's real at the highest level at the wizards course which implies that but there was never work on your own past life or anything like that that wasn't talked about how interesting so so of course in scientology with with somebody who'd been abused as a three-year-old mm -hmm. the easy answer is well you did something in an earlier oh. life and wow that's, that's that's what you shouldn't have done and it's interesting that palmer would walk away from you know this is one of the major aspects of scientology the concept of past lives and future mm -hmm. lives to some extent and hubbard of course yeah, as the years went by in, in 1952 in a book that's now called Scientology History of Man um, he says this is a cold-blooded and factual account of your last 60 trillion years later in the book he says 73 trillion and later more 76 trillion they they've corrected the text since then it says 76 but this 60 million million years and so this becomes you know vitally important to Scientologists that they're remembering this because that explains why they don't have supernormal powers and that's that's the other end of it that so Palmer has a, a view that there are spirits and on the wizard's course tells you there are discarnate entities around mm -hmm. what sort of effect do these discarnate entities have upon people are, are they something we need to worry about oh absolutely and that's why you need to get to the wizard's course I, I, let me sign me up <laughs> do you get 10 percent if you sign me up no i got nothing from the nothing they paid oh this is an unethical system what can i say Seventy five hundred dollars and i gave three weeks of my life from you know with absolutely no sleep uh you know to be helping out with that and at the wizards course they collected everybody's transgressions even the, the new wizards it was incredible you had a box to write what transgressions you um, did against the organization, but I, I won't go there any more than I just did. <laughs> um, so the, the 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 theory was that, um, and this is in a book that's available to anybody now. I forget the name of a book because he published a, a a book with some of these wizards concepts in it that's available to the public. Mm. So he says that um, whatever negative patterns you have entities are attracted to them and they magnify these patterns and make them worse so you need tools to get rid of these entities so that your patterns are not exacerbated and after you do all this work taking all the responsibility you still may have entities operating so you need to clear them out and that's what's going to really keep them from the patterns from coming back and, and the, the entities don't respond to other treatments. They need his entity handle. Of course they do. 
<laughs> so can these entities assume human or other animal form or are they perpetually discarnate? Um, a, a, you know, according to what I read, they can cause illness. They enter your energy field. So your mind, your body, and they create a lot of problems for you in that way. So yeah, the, the invisible enemy, the enemy with it. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, just a little comment. You, you talked about Harry Palmer's boring videos and it, it does seem to be a commonplace among such groups that the, the leader drones for a certain amount of time and, and people are, they're either just falling asleep on it yeah. or, um, which is not permitted of course. Oh my um, gosh. I got people in trouble for falling asleep a lot. I would for think on five hours sleep a night, you know, I, yeah, um, I would have to call them out on that. Yeah. Uh, or what happens is you're sat there going, oh, this is beyond my level of comprehension. When I've achieved a higher level, I'll understand why oh, Ron yeah. Hubbard is spending 25 minutes fabricating a story about being a war hero or, you know. Right. And you hmm. watched, we had to watch them, I don't know, thousands of times. We just kept watching hmm. them every every time there was a course. We watched the same ones over and over and over again very important part of indoctrination yeah the number of times through the materials equals the certainty according to ron hubbard that's and, right uh, there's a particular horrific course in scientology which thankfully thankfully i did not do called the primary rundown and you have um six tape lectures by hubbard and then you have every word that is in those lectures in the sequence, and you have to take every word, go to a dictionary, and word clear it, which means look at all of the potential meanings, the etymology, and um, use it in sentences, make sure you understand it. And you have to go through every word in every lecture. And it doesn't matter, you know, you've already word cleared of or it or, or what have you. You have to do it again. And you have to do it three times through. You listen to the tapes three times. And at the end of that, you are super literate is you know something definitely worthwhile but why you'd be super literate because you'd cleared those particular words and you know as somebody who who knew how to use a dictionary before i got to scientology you know i knew what an etymology was and i know what the little dates are you know telling me first usage and things like that it it's a a very interesting way of you know they went further after i left there's a course came out called the key to life and you're Hubbard had decided that we don't understand language, so we need little pictures, first of all. And you basically take somebody back to being four years old and then you, know, you inf infantilize them and then put put this material back in so that you will then agree with, with Ron Hubbard. You remind me of something that, that I've just talked with, with Chris about, and uh, he, he gave a talk in Toronto in 2015 as well. That was when he was... Uh, a fledgling ex-Scientologist. It was his third public appearance. Can you imagine that? He's he did about 2,000 shows now. Yeah. But he told us about a thing called the Truth Rundown, which I, you know, it was introduced long after I'd defected. And the idea is that, that you've criticised the organisation in some way and you have mm -hmm. to be taken through a process of steps that brings yeah. you to realise the organisation did nothing wrong and yeah. it's just your... Um, misperception and and your um you know 
counter and other intention that has led you your evil purposes indeed that has led you to characterize it in this way yeah and that seems to be an essential that you know that if you're going to maintain a group you have to come to this point of you know harry palmer is just the most incredible man who ever lived what can i say he's handsome virtuous um the fastest sprinter in the world he can play chess with one with his eyes closed there, there has to be some uh, hero making some some worship of the person to what extent you know how did people feel about harry palmer in avatar well he did it in such a way where he downplayed his guru status so that you would always say like oh he's not a guru so he tried to play the part of being really humble mm which is just further confused you like this, you know, farmer and all this stuff. Um, but, you know, it was a lot of Harry says and, you know, looking up to him and thinking that he had the keys to really helping the world, mm. which is, you know, it's just very interesting because I've learned so much since the two and a half years since I've been out, obviously, I mean, I'm studying this stuff and I have so much more to learn, but the, just that um, a concept about, you know, saving the world, that alone, that alone is a huge red flag because when somebody gives you what the problem with the world is, that's their setup to give you their solution. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I found that when we're buying into a concept we get very conceptual, like saving the world, we lose sight of the individual. Mm. And that's what happened. We were trained to put the mission in front of the individual. Mm. And so the amount of dehumanization that can take place when you are putting a mission in front of an individual. Now, I, the jury's still out as far as whether like how I feel about having a mission. I happen to be a, I would call myself a mission oriented person. I love mm -hmm. like, all right, I'm going to do something, you know, and, and, but what I do now is I always make sure to res that respect and humility are part of it. And that mm -hmm. the individual is considered and that my personal well being and goals and participation is also considered. So, um, you know, I just gave all of that up for the mission. And I want to also be clear that I wasn't a passive follower. I started out as a passive follower and I became a top leader in this mission. And I was one of the biggest recruiters. I was very proud of that. I don't say that proudly now. And I have mm -hmm. called almost all of my students to let them know that I've left and mm -hmm. why. Um, and I'm not. I'm not now trying to get people out because I know that doesn't work. That's a different conversation. Many people tried to get me out many times. Um, but I, I was up there. Um, I, I wasn't abusive to the extent that they were abusing me. Uh -huh. I, I really took on the belief that they were abusing me for my own good, which is what I really, I, I, I think people need to watch out for because once you buy that, you have given control of another person. 
uh, you have given control to another person over you. Mm -hmm. When you start adopting this idea, I, I thought that everything they were doing, telling me I was too sensitive. Oh yeah, I, I am very sensitive. Well, that they were making me stronger and all that. I mean, I, I, the types of uh, yelling and humiliation and um, disrespect and verbal emotional abuse was constant. And I always thought it was for my own good. Yeah. Um, anyway, what was my track? What was my thread? <laughs> But you're talking uh, about world, world saving and the attitude of oh yeah you know, you know that we, we you you said you're somebody who needs a mission a, a, a cause some something and I think all good people do I, I think wanting to do something about the state of the world and uh, is is very positive and and where people have, don't have that there's something wrong. Uh, generally, of course, for many people, they're desperately trying to survive for about a third of the people in the world. And yeah. they don't have the luxury to think about anything beyond whether they're going to eat. But right. I, I think what you're saying about having you know, humility and respect uh, and, and looking after yourself as well, that um, it, it is, you know, I, I have... I am somebody who, you know, I, I decided I wanted to help people mm -hmm. uh, who had escaped Scientology, uh, and I help people to escape Scientology as well. And so I think that's a, something we, we might talk about, that there are useful things you can do that are effective, mm -hmm. and there are all the wrong things, which is what people usually do. I will reason them out. I will use my critical thinking, and I will persuade them by using the evidence. I've got this newspaper article. Here, have a look at this. No, that's not going to work. Um, it's about relationship. It, yes. it, it's about, you know, my friend Christian Sturko has talked with, we don't know how many people, but three or 4,000 people over the last 45, 50 years. And his approach, he doesn't do interventions. He doesn't go and pull people out. He, yes. Somebody will come to him and they have concerns about a family member or a friend, and he will see what he can find out about the relationship and then all he will work on is the relationship of the person to the family there, there is nothing hidden there is nothing machiavellian there is no objective to get the person out of the group right. and he will sometimes be talking with somebody who's in a group for four or five years um and then they'll go oh actually maybe i ought to do something about this so it can be done but it the you know we all we all live in the shadow of Ted Patrick and the kidnap deprogrammers of the 70s. And then the interventionists, and I, I did interventions for four or five years in the 90s until eventually I decided it was just too much pressure to put on me to be yeah. harassed all the time by Scientology and have all this terrible stuff going on. But I have I've interviewed a number of people. Um, you know, I, I know uh, Anna Whitfield, pretty well i i know um joe zimhart's a really good friend of mine um mm -hmm. pat ryan and joe kelly are good friends steve hassan and i go back to what 1989 and they're mm -hmm. people who've done a lot of intervention work mm -hmm. and I, I understand it i get the idea and sometimes it's probably a good thing to do but um maintaining relationship 
creating relationship, not putting people down for what they're doing, not wanting to have those conversations about what they believe, letting them tell you what they believe and nodding sagely when they do. Um, but letting people know there's somewhere to go. So often the case is that they'll have become so embedded in the group and there'll have been such antagonism about the group, which is understandable, that they lose contact with their mm -hmm. own family. They lose contact with their friends. And when the, you know, the long dark night of the soul does come, when they start wondering what to do, they've nowhere to go. There's no one there for them. So I, I, th I think it's wonderful that you've contacted people that, that, that you brought in mm -hmm. and said, I'm not doing it anymore. Mm -hmm. Because that just of itself, you know, is a, is a starting place. But it, approaching people with, um, you know, you see, I, I didn't really mean to do this with my life. It's 40 years later and it just happened. There was a need. People, you know, nobody had written a history of Scientology, so that needed to be done. Nobody had written a biography of Hubbard in any detail. So um, Bareface Messiah, which is that biography, I, is based upon my book, Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky, and I was the researcher biography so that needed to be done let's you know let's put the information there so that if people want it they can have it and it was all very interesting um and incredibly valuable because now we have a conversation it, hmm. it was steve hassan's book that i listened to that woke me up yeah. i i did not know now this is a conversation so all the work you've done all the exposure all the research the books and it's really saving people's lives and i think helping people understand authoritarianism in a whole new way so i am very passionate about being a part of the education and awareness mm -hmm. and i love to help train therapists i talked to dr hassan about possibly collaborating in that uh, mm -hmm. area i mean i i want to do anything i can because i have the therapeutic background as well as the personal experience of the inner journey of how it happens oh. right and, and how to get out and you're absolutely right everything you said about the um what doesn't work <laughs> to try to get somebody out and i think there's a lot of people who love somebody who's caught up in some kind of conspiracy theory or group and a lot of people are asking what do i do what do i say how do i handle this and it's it's a great question and it, it, it's it's so important. I had a, a woman walked up to me at a, a conference and she told me that she was really glad that the policy in Scientology C organization, the inner group, is that, that they're not allowed to have children because her grandchildren wouldn't be brainwashed into Scientology. And I didn't know what to say. And she'd already gone before she just passed by and told me this thing and it's sort of no it it isn't like that it, it you know we are not it, it, we don't have brainwashed zombies being turned out here about 50 percent of kids who grow up in Scientology will leave without mm -hmm. anybody on the outside saying anything just as soon as they possibly can they will leave mm -hmm. and uh, you know age 16 gone that the important thing is maintaining family, is maintaining community. So, so that, you know, I, I have friends who have all sorts of different beliefs. I'm an agnostic. I, you know, 
it's I'm not clever enough to work that stuff out. I just have to accept that. And <laughs> so there are people who believe in God. There are people who believe in not God. There are all sorts of formulations. For me, all of these things are metaphors, and I don't have any problem at all in sitting and talking you know, about the New Testament with friends of mine who I have three friends who are theologians. And it's fascinating. It's all fine. Nobody gets upset. Nobody gets angry. There's no need. So it's not what people believe. It's what they do. And if they've got themselves caught up in a version of Christianity or Islam or Buddhism, I mean, what we're seeing in Myanmar uh, with the Rohingya or, or in uh, Sri Lanka with the Tamils, where Buddhist, supposedly Buddhist monks are involved in the persecution. Um, these are horrible things. When the, so when the beliefs lead to a, a, an antisocial, anti-human um, practice, that's another matter. But being able to maintain a relationship with somebody who politically, you know, doesn't uh, agree with me. Actually, you stimulated the thought, yeah. thought talking about Harry Palmer that, and his humility that one of the things that Donald Trump said in a, a little book called Think Like a Champion, which he didn't write because he didn't write any of his books, but it says, one of the things that people don't realize about me is how humble I am. <laughs> so, yeah. well, I'm yeah. imagining that Harry Palmer is probably equally humble to, yeah. to Trump. Yeah. Um, I, I, I could have gone in three directions with that. Um, I think that one of the things that my partner Mark and I talk about is righteousness, hmm. right? So it's it's the righteousness of the beliefs, not necessarily the beliefs. Of course, there are beliefs that lead to very dangerous behaviors. But if you're open-minded and uh, aware and not dehumanizing, it's I, I now love having discussions with people of all different backgrounds about all kinds of beliefs. And now I see the value in that. Avatar would act like they were open-minded, but they were never. There was always an agenda to bring people to your side of how you saw it and that's one of the problems with the world right now absolutely i mean we we have various videos with my friend yval Lao um on on the channel and he has you know, i was sort of poking my way towards this formulation that critical thinking is not going to save us mm -hmm. of course we should develop mm -hmm. our critical thinking as best we can and understand logical fallacies and all this kind of stuff. But when I arrived at Scientology age 19, I could already argue the hind legs off a donkey or indeed any other animal you like. And it didn't save me because I used that facility to justify Scientology. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that, that there are stages in the way that lead to fervor, that, you know, and Yuval, I think, is closest to a, a reasoned explanation of why, as an aspect of human thinking and human evolution, that that we attach ourselves to these groups, how it is that extraordinarily clever human beings, um, Isaac Newton um, was a member of the Unitarians, and uh, you know, which may be seen as rational, but he could have lost his life if that had been discovered. Um, Dalton, the, the chemist, was was a minister. Um, the man who gave us the uh, Big Bang theory was a Catholic priest. So, so there's this idea in our society, you've got science 
and reason, sorry, science and reason on one side and religion and faith on the other, it's absolutely not true. As Stephen Jay Gould pointed out, they're different magisteria. They're different ways of approaching the world. One is about quantities and measurement and the other is about qualities, qualia. And so what's the reasons that, that he gives for um, that lead to the fervor? What's his? Well, it, I, he is suggesting that, that, that it is innate in some people, that some people are high fervor and some people are low mm -hmm. fervor. And oh, that's interesting. Certainly from my experience of Scientology, I never became a high fervor Scientologist. I, I was shocked when I was leaving that, that I would point out to somebody, well, Hubbard was a liar. He said you know, he was a much decorated war hero here, and he said he, he didn't see service here. And they would say, oh, well, he had two bodies. So realizing that fervor will twist reality. So he talks That's about if you'll experience something that is, um, I, I call it an inexplicable event. He still uses the word miracle um, to, to, to taunt us. But you'll see something that doesn't make sense to you. You'll experience something that doesn't make sense to you. In Scientology, it's often you'll sit down and you'll do training routine zero where you try you, you stare at somebody and you'll feel euphoric mm -hmm. and that is what he would call an awe experience mm -hmm. you you have other people use the word transcendence other people mm -hmm. talk about a peak experience maslow's maslow's way of looking at it um and that then makes us susceptible to the source of that technique Mm -hmm. So that we go, oh, they gave us this gift, not realizing that sitting and staring at anything will will we'll do that. Yeah. Yes. And they then become an authority figure to us. And right. that right. then we develop a belief that attaches to that. There's often, uh, I mean, I point to it in opening our minds, that there's a, a, people change their minds when they're in a period of transition. And there's this this thought that it's you know when your life is desperate and awful and dreadful that's when you're you can be recruited well that is one of the times but where you move town where you go into a new job uh, where you first year at university the freshman year that's the because you've when also teenagers tend to be more fervent there are all of these new emotional things opening up as you go into adolescence and you can become fixated upon things so I mean, we we have I think three hours of present of his presentation on the channel. I'd absolutely recommend it because he's his PhD was called the Religious Ape, mm. uh, which gives you some idea. And he studied yeah. with Evie Blanca at Tel Aviv, who is one of the world's leading experts on evolution, and has sort of pushed away this selfish gene notion, saying you know we have natural selection and sexual selection, and we're going yeah, but we also have epigenetics. And we also have cultural transmission. And, you know, younger biologists have pretty much all accepted this. If you're under 40, yeah, you know this, you've seen the evidence. If you're over 40, you might still be with Richard Dawkins and, and this kind of mechanistic view of the world. Once you accept cultural transmission that genes are not read-only, you know, you can change something that will then be inherited. It will then pass down. So if you had a grandfather who ate too much at McDonald's, then you might have a problem with obesity because mm -hmm. of the methylation of genes and the, the epigenetic changes that occurred. And it, I think it makes us all wonderfully interesting. I, for me, it's replaced spirituality as a concept that we are, um, all of us, every single person creatively capable of changing 
human destiny. You know, we're mm. all part of this. There are no sort of, and that again, you used the word that to me is the essential word about 10 minutes ago, which is the word authoritarian, mm -hmm. that, that I see that there are people who believe they are living gods and that their word should be followed. People like Harry Palmer, Ron Hubbard, one or two others in history. And then there are people who can't make their minds up. They're not quite sure. And, and that this person's cleverer than I am. So we'll let them decide. And I'm with a lot of people have come up with this 60%. Schopenhauer had it. Uh, mm -hmm. Eric Fromm talks about 60% of people only have a pseudo self. They don't develop a self. Um, mm -hmm. Milgram in his first experiment was, I think, 62.5% of people will go all the way to the triple X and the kill mark on, on the electric shock machine. Um, and more recently, Jane McGregor here at Nottingham University has suggested that 60% of people are what she calls apaths and they will be, their decisions will be made for them. You know, uh, what sort of clothes should I wear? What kind of house? Uh, what kind of latte should I have that would be the right one so that I'll be seen properly? Um, I just, I'm watching a documentary about Taylor Swift just mm. noticed it was there and looked at it. She's a fascinating character and um, doing a, a curriculum for working on a curriculum for kids, which has advertising in it. And she's interesting because she was paid $26 million for her name and image to be used by for one year by Diet Coke. So that's mm. half a million dollars a week for the use of her image. She's obviously an amazingly talented. It's not, her music is not interesting to me, but but I can see that she's really, you know, she's a good lyricist. She writes great stuff, all of this. Um, but in the documentary, she, there's a film of her right through from infancy. She's a performer and she keeps saying everything depends on me, you know, what I get back from people. She has, mm. she's hollow. She is a pseudo self. Mm. Um, I have a, you know, I've used Elton John and David Bowie as examples of this, of people who they didn't, without the adulation, they didn't exist. And I think with both Elton John and with David Bowie, and I think Taylor Swift, perhaps in the process, they grew up. You know, they actually went, no, that's okay. I don't need to be that. I can be mm -hmm. creative and, and do that. And it, it's not about a desperate need to be adulated. So... That that's those are people who are going to be vulnerable to authoritarian belief, rather than mm -hmm. saying, "No, I I don't agree with that," or "I have a question about that," or and, it, and for me, changing that so that sixty percent of the people are, as my friend Ira Chaleff would say, intelligently disobedient or mm -hmm. courageous followers. His two con wonderful concepts. Um, that that is the world saving that i'm involved in i don't feel any messianic purpose thankfully and i right. do sometimes think that i'd you know like to actually retire and paint some pictures instead but yeah <laughs> i think i and i feel very optimistic about that i feel very hopeful that that we are agents mm -hmm. of change that that we can make make a, a better world and that it doesn't have to be a kind of patrician capitalist world where jeff bezos and Elon Musk are determining what the politicians will have to do if they want to be funded. You know, we we could make something better of it, I think. 
Yeah, but not by having an answer, as you're saying, and not by uh, mm. having the right way, right? By educating and exploring and conversing and learning together. That's yeah, and different. exactly. Right. Being a community of learning and, and rather than imposing beliefs on right. people, right. getting people to do their own believing, you know, so quite the opposite. That's right. Process. Yeah. Right. That that's exactly right. It's interesting. Um, my son, who is now twenty-six, he he never fully bought into Avatar. Mm. And it's interesting. There's there's an interview where Rachel Bernstein interviews him. And yeah, I I knew all along. And he he was so happy and proud of me when I got out. He liked some of the tools and he also made friends. So he would like to come to the courses and hang out with the other teenagers. Mm. That was really fun for him, get get away from school and all that. But he was constantly in trouble. And I would always bring him, you know, to the trainers at Avatar to have to do more processing of secrets and things like that. Oh my gosh. Um now uh, we have an incredible relationship now but mm. he always uh he was one of those people who didn't get sucked in and same with my partner mark when we first met i was fully in mm. and of course i i can't be with someone who hasn't done the courses so <laughs> i dragged him to the courses and you know he got some benefit initially but it was very quickly on that he recognized what was happening mm. um and so the it's been, it was a very interesting journey. Yeah. He, he didn't buy into it at all. Mm. Luckily for you. I, I know. Right. Imagine that if the two of us now are fully, Oh gosh. Wow. A good point. Oh, I I'm so very eternally grateful. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I'd like to come back and talk to you again at some point. Um, let me know you know how you're getting on with with the book you're writing and um if if you know if you feel the urge at any time that you feel there's something else that that you'd like to share then then i think there is so much here uh, to explore absolutely i would love to be in touch and maybe we could just end with kind of wrapping it up with this thing that we've touched on about so like what did Mark do that worked versus my friends and family over mm. the years and everybody that was trying to get me to see what was happening? I, I think that would be a fascinating, fascinating wrap up. Do you have the time? Yes, absolutely. Oh. Let's do that. What works like if you have somebody who is so highly involved and committed to something that you're recognizing as a, as a cult or, or dangerous for them, right? Yep. Okay. Mm. And what happened? What happened with you? How, how did you um, come how did away? I react? From... Okay, and how did I come away from? Oh, that's a whole that's a story, but I can make it that brief. So, over the years, I mean, my parents were um, incredibly supportive in the sense that they never cut me off. They always welcomed me. They welcomed time with me. They stayed in touch. Occasionally, they would say, you know, they would express their concerns, but they would have these moments maybe once or twice a year where they would be very, very upset. Like, why are you leaving your child? You're not making any money, mm -hmm. you know, look and try to, you know, knock some sense into me. I totally understand it. It's an instinct that makes perfect sense. But what that would do 
is that would just make me see them as more unenlightened. So anytime they did that, they lost credibility. And so if you have a person who's in one of these groups, um, you have to recognize that if they're really committed, they're at the point where they think they have answers and you are at a way lesser level. So you don't have that kind of credibility Mm -hmm. to be giving them any kind of information. So that didn't work. That just destroyed trust. Um, Keeping the connection was really wonderful. Um, I had a roommate, funnily enough, who lost her husband to Scientology. They went for a um, introduction and he stayed. She wouldn't. And then they ended up obviously getting divorced. He's still in Scientology and married and very active. Mm-hmm. And so what worked was the way she handled it and the way my partner, Mike Mark, handled it. So when I would come home from a course, she would just very gently say, do you recognize how exhausted you are? Mm-hmm. And it would make me think, yeah. And then she would say, oh, that that's very early that you're getting up to go again. Oh, wow, it's been three weeks. She would just gently point things out. And mm-hmm. it kind of got me thinking. And um, she also refused to come to a course. And she would just say very, like, uh, give her good reasons why like it sounds like a cult to me just very casually not confrontive Hmm. little dropping little seeds but what mark did was um he also pointed out like what i was experiencing and asked me to be in touch with how i was feeling yeah and that was the first time like we were very close and i let him in a little tiny bit as to how I was feeling. But it's so interesting because I shared nothing about what was actually happening Mm. with him until after I left, because I wanted to get him to keep coming back to courses. That's how bad it was. So we were living together and I was being abused and he, I was not sharing with him, Mm. but what he did was he would um, consistently help me connect with what I was feeling, which is what I think got me back to reconnection with myself. It broke my spell. And Mm -hmm. he also invited me to enjoy life, which I had not done. I had lost completely. So we would walk, we would relax. These were all things that I was sneaking and had to write up. And I share on Chris's video, a funny story about how we went kayaking one day. And I got in huge trouble for that because I pretended that I wasn't. Mm-hmm. But, so the combination of bonding, connecting, and gently helping me get in touch with what I feel started to reconnect me with who I am. And then as I started listening to the information, podcast things that were out there in Stephen Hassan's book, um, I started to get real. And then there was a, a series of events that happened that caused me to leave. But I think we'll save that for another time. Um, mm-hmm. That had nothing to do with the people. Um, the last thing I want to say that's also very important is that um, people did not, like Mark never criticized me for what mm-hmm. I was doing. My parents never criticized me. They expressed concern. And so that when I was ready to leave, I did 
hang my head low because I was the biggest supporter. This is like, you know, the greatest thing on earth that I was always trying to get everybody into. And then it was like, oh my God, you guys were right. I mean, that's not a fun feeling, right? But nobody um, was mad at me. Nobody Mm. shamed me. Nobody was in an I told you so. Everybody said, good for you. We are so happy to have you back. Mm. That must have taken a lot of courage. So remember that you want to keep that connection and you want to give them the ability to turn around and say, you know what? I've had a change of view and that they're welcome and supported for that. Hmm. Basically what worked for me. Yeah, and I think think it's really important that, that, so Mark was concerned with your feelings and just getting somebody to reflect in a safe and comfortable environment and say, well, how are you feeling today? And what's going on? And are you getting enough sleep? Or, you know, you know, just bringing those things paid? in. He would ask me, did you get paid? <laughs> and then I would say, and I would say, no, I paid. And he would say, do you know, that's not normal. Mm. And I would say, it's not. Sorry to interrupt, but yes. No, I think it's, it, it's important. And it, and it is the the way in which it's expressed that if if you feel that somebody's judging you, then of course your defenses will go up. Whereas if you feel that somebody has your welfare at heart, and they don't push it, you know, it's 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 just saying one thing, and letting that seed grow rather than getting in the way. Um, That's right. And and. You know, there is this, it, it, it's one of the problems of the, this concept of brainwashing that, that's been foisted upon us. Of course, you can change somebody's internal reality. You can change how somebody views the world. You can do that. But in the end, they're still alive. They're still human. And they can still perceive and sense things. And the thing that's most important, I think, is the love we feel. And when people express towards us concern and care, then, you know, that has something to do with it. It's like with, you know, one of the things I think Steve said in the in combating cult mind control, that if you meet some poor shoddy Krishna who's begging for money, you say, oh, um, when did you last talk to your mum? Here, let's go to the phone and ring her up now. <laughs> you know, or you get them a sandwich, you know, that, or whatever but right. you show that that the the non-believer can also you know be a a good and compassionate person and it can that can cause a sort of reflection of that's not the way i'm treated in the group exactly exactly and that that's that's exactly what it was you 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 think you're connected to these people you're not and then when you feel genuine connection, it's remarkable. It's like, and the other thing is like, you're kind of under a spell of sorts. And so trying to indoctrinate someone who is, has been so indoctrinated that they're under a spell doesn't work. You have to help them relax and just become, like come back first. Mm. And that's why kindness and care, concern and planting seeds works. And and I agree with the notion of, of an enchantment being a very good way of looking at this. That yeah. that it it is that that you've accepted ideas and beliefs. That 
you've not been able to fully examine. They've somehow, it's like, well, we're working for the good of humanity. We just want you to go and kill those people over there. You know, that, that, and genuine warmth, you know, the relaxation, the idea of going kayaking or going for a walk or taking the person out of the environment and not talking about that, talking, getting them to reflect upon, you know, their goals and ambitions before they joined, you know, what, what, what were you doing? What did you want to be? Or, or just getting somebody to think about the pleasure they had before they're in the group. I mean, Steve and various other That's people true. show photographs of, you know, the pre-cult period. That's and right. it sort of, you know, just putting somebody's attention towards something and away from the thought stopping of, you know, I, I belong to the only vital group in the world nobody else is doing anything useful that well that's a good point and probably getting to know him because we started dating right so i was getting to know him and talking about myself outside of avatar so it started to bring that stuff out and they wanted me to get away from him right they of course because they didn't want that outside influence mm. so yeah so that was that's also part of it is is bringing back that side mm. to us it's not enchanted and then during COVID is where I, I left. So yes, getting somebody away from the environment when COVID happened, courses stopped. And I had a moment of being away from that influence um, in such a concrete way. So yeah. I was still getting the phone calls, but courses stopped. So uh, yes, anything that brings you back to huh? your own self, your own voice and enjoyment of life is so much better than trying to indoctrinate hmm. somebody yeah, have, out. Having a pleasant, you know, having a, a pleasant, nice experience outside of the group. I was talking with another friend who's a China watcher and and lived there for three years, and and he was saying that um, it's fascinating after three years of lockdown in China that there's been a tremendous change in the Chinese people. That they've they're not on the machine doing this all the time. They, they've had time to stop and think. I had a friend who grew up in Scientology. He was a Swiss guy, and he was 18, and he was very high-ranking by this time because they used teenagers at that time to run things. And they've all grown older and are still running it. But really remarkable young man uh, called Danny. And he, he, he didn't have a visa because he was Swiss, so he had to go to Spain for a couple of weeks and be in a hotel. And nobody thought of what to do with him. So he had two weeks on his own. And that was enough. He sat down for two weeks and went, what on earth am I doing? This is nonsense. Isn't that amazing? Just this time and space like that, yeah. away from the influence of the constant influence of, oh my gosh. Yeah, that that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I am very grateful because I enjoy every moment of my life now. I mean, in such a new way because I had no freedom for those 20 years, mm. I really am amazed every day. It's, it's mm. And that's one of the gifts of having gone through that mm. is the joy of just cooking a meal and watching a movie and having time to myself and with my family. Mm. It's incredible. And I haven't lost that incredible appreciation of that. So that's that's really wonderful. Absolutely. And let me say it's now 39 years since I left yeah. Scientology. I've never yeah. once wanted to pick up the cans again. And I am happier now than I have ever been 
in my life since I was probably about four years old. You know, I, life is is rich and wonderful, and I enjoy it. So, yeah, there is life yeah. after the cult experience. Oh, it's yes, it's very much so. Yes. All right. Thank you Great. so much, John. Thank you. It's been a, a tremendous pleasure, and and we'll um, we'll talk again along the way. So it's been an honor. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Yeah. Bye. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you'd click like, as well as subscribe, and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps, and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. Or you can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much.